Yes, welcome to Home Studio q and I nearly forgot the name of the show there. For another week, my name is Pete. This is Studio Live today, and this is our show where I answer your questions about home, mobile recording, gear, and everything in between. If you are making music and you have questions about how to make that music, then this is the place for you. Do I have all the answers? No, I don't. But the beautiful part is we have the Studio Live Today community behind us as well, many of whom are here live on YouTube and Facebook. So hello to the folks who are here live. If you're watching on the replay, as I always say, we love you just as much. If you've got questions that aren't answered in the show, drop those in the comments. Myself and others in the community will circle back around. What have we got going on today? Well, my feature topic is going to be about buying gear online very relevant at the moment given the current climate and situation and then we're going to dive into a heap of questions. I think I've got 17. It might be a record number of questions. A lot of people asking a lot of stuff in the last few days, not surprisingly. So we'll get into some of those but if you are here live and you do have a question, I will stop off halfway through those questions and check in with the folks live. So put question in your comment and I will circle back and grab those questions. Let's jump in to the feature topic and we're talking about buying gear online. So what do you need to keep in mind when you're buying gear online? And well, how does it differ from going into a store? It is a, it's an interesting one because if you're buying musical instruments and if you're buying things you want to touch and feel, obviously you can't do that online. So you have to rely on some other things. And that's what we'll talk about here. I do have a gear guide. If you go over to studiolivetoday.com slash gear, that is my gear guide. So if you are in the market for buying new gear, there are a list of affiliate links over at studiolivetoday.com slash gear. And if you go there and buy that, buy from there, what they do is they break off a little chunk and they send it my way. You pay the same amount, but Amazon or eBay or Sweetwater, whoever it is, they will pay a little bit to me and that helps support what we do here. So uh, I did want to put that up front because I do have affiliate partnerships and they are Amazon, eBay, and I'm about to start one with Sweetwater in the US. So if you do buy through those, I get, a, I get a, an affiliate revenue uh, and I want to be upfront about that because that's one of the things we'll be talking about in a moment is how do you trust people like me who are telling you what you should and shouldn't buy? We'll cover that in a moment. But let's start with number one here. The number one piece of advice I have is to buy from a reputable seller. So the reason that I have partnerships with Amazon and eBay and Sweetwater and not other sites that will remain unnamed is that I know that if I send you to these sites and you buy from them, you're going to get the level of service and the level of support that you need. Just like if you go into a brick and mortar store, you tend to go to the stores that you trust that you've used before that other people. And here's the problem. If you have an issue and you've bought something from musicstuffrus.com that just popped up three months ago and because they were $10 cheaper than Amazon, you decided to buy from them. Well, guess what? If you hadn't heard of them, neither have the authorities. You go to report to them when they scam you out and they send you a brick in a box instead of that new interface that you were looking for. So that's my number one tip is that it does pay to buy from a reputable reseller. It doesn't mean don't support small business. If you've got a small business in your town that does delivery, here in Australia, we've got places like Store DJ, DJ City. We've got some great places, Winston Music, great places you can buy from. So, but again, look at the reputation, how long have they been around and what sort of after sales service are you likely to get? Tip number two is to check the return policy. Yes, it is very challenging if you buy something, you use it, you don't like it and you want to return it and you realize that you can't return it or you can only get credit or there was something in the fine print that said, if you open this box, you can never send it back again. 
<clears throat> so in most countries, you do have refund rights. So if it's not fit for purpose, if it's broken, if it's not working, if it's DOA, dead on arrival, then you do have a sort of mandated state or federal laws that are going to protect you. For change of mind decisions, though, it varies in different places. So be really clear and careful. The reason I love Amazon in particular is their return policy is kind of completely transparent. Here's an example. I bought a, a microphone for my iPhone. It's a Zoom, little Zoom IQ7. It was a good microphone, but it just didn't work for my workflow. Like it wasn't quite right. And I thought I could hang on to this, but I really want to try the Shure MV88. So bundled it back up, put in the claim, sent it to Amazon, ordered the Shure MV88. Within, I think, under two weeks, the, uh, the refund was processed for the Zoom going back, and I had the Shure MV88 in my hand. And that was coming all the way from the US. So that's a pretty good deal for someone here in Australia. I could do that. It was at like no cost to me. It was all just sent back. So yeah, check the refund policy before you buy online. Number three, more expensive doesn't always mean better. It's kind of like a bottle of wine. For wine drinkers out there, there is a low end. So you probably don't want to buy the cheapest. If you go onto uh, eBay and find a $20 condenser microphone, you're probably not going to get a great quality recording. But the difference between a $100 and then a $200, $300, $400, $500 you're not gonna get that level. So don't get a $100 mic and go, hey, if I buy a $400 Shure SM7B, I'm gonna sound four times as good. It doesn't work that way. It's diminishing levels of return. Again, to the wine analogy, a $5 bottle of Plonk or a cask of Goon, as we say, the the boxes of cask wine here in Australia, uh, that's going to be a big difference to a $20 bottle of decent wine you get from a bottle shop. But when you go from a $20 to a $50, unless you've got very discerning taste, you're not going to notice a significant difference. It's going to be diminishing levels. It doesn't go up at a proportional level. So keep that in mind when you're buying gear. Don't go out there and buy the most expensive stuff because it's probably going to be beyond what you need. But at the same token, don't buy the cheapest stuff as well. And the last, the fourth and final thing I wanted to talk about alludes to what I said at the start around reviews. Yes. Keep in mind that people can be incentivized for positive reviews of products. There's a few ways they can be incentivized. Number one, they can be paid. Hey, money talks, right? So someone like myself could be paid by a distributor. They could be paid by a manufacturer to say, to do a review of their product. Now, good reviewers, good content creators will give you 100% disclosure in the text of the review, in the video itself, and for all of the reviews I do. And whenever I mention my affiliate links, I will always have in there. These are affiliate links. I receive a commission if you buy from these. So you can check that and make sure that you know you keep that in a grain of salt. The other thing that uh, reviewers can do is they get free gear. So if, if I got some free Steinberg interfaces and then Steinberg said, hey, would you like to review these interfaces? Then I would go, yeah. Now, when I do it, I say, yes. If, if someone wants to give me something, I'll say, I will check that out if it's something I'm interested in. But then when I do a review, I will put paid promotion on the review. And then I will actually say, because even if I'm receiving the gear, not the payment, it is still a paid promotion. I'm getting something, whether it's money or whether it's the actual gear, I'm getting something. And other channels are exactly the same. And again, the good ones will always tell you 100%. You'll, tell, you'll be able to tell the difference anyway. The flip side is also true. So it's not only the good reviews you have to worry about, but the bad reviews are that, that are on sites like Amazon, if you read between the lines, a lot of them are people that have purchased the product and either have expectations up here and the products down here. So I recommend a pair of earbuds. They're the JBL Endurance Run. They're a $20 pair of earbuds. 
and they're really good for $20. They're amazing. And a lot of people that give them negative reviews are like, these are not as good as my Beats by Dre $200 earphones. And I'm like, no, Sherlock. Yeah, they're not going to be as good as your $200 earphones because they're $20 earphones. And for $20 earphones, they're actually exceptional. But again, people's expectations or they just bought something that's completely not fit for their purpose and they're really angry about it. Other thing about reviews, and Amazon are good with this because they tend to go through and scrape through and any of the review bot farms or the people that are paid by the review to make positive reviews. Have you ever seen this? You've been on a, a website and you're like, there's just like Steve in Denver says, this is perhaps the greatest microphone in the history of the world ever, full stop. And then you go to another review and it's Steve from Denver. This is the greatest audio interface in the history of the world, full stop. And yeah, you can tell these. And the good sites will remove them. The less reputable sites uh, will not remove them. So be really careful when you're buying and looking at reviews. Take everything with a grain of salt. And on the positive side of this, like anything in life, just get multiple opinions. So if, if I say, if Pete says the Steinberg UR22C is an amazing interface because it's built like a tank, really quiet preamps, and has great audio quality, that's cool. But if you go to Amazon and buy it, then Pete gets an affiliate revenue. That's just how it works. But go to someone else's site, go to Google, go to YouTube, search that same device and see what other people are saying about it. And if they're saying the same sort of things, you can be pretty safe that it's that's the case. And if you're worried that I'm going to make you buy things, here's the thing. With a lot of these uh, affiliates, it doesn't actually matter what you buy. <laughs> so if I want to sell a particular product because I like it, and then you decide to buy something else, once you go and you use those links, anything you buy gets an affiliate revenue back to the person who sent you there. So that actually helps out. And hopefully what that's trying to do is not make people just want to sell the one most expensive product all the time. Because again, it's a challenge because if someone's getting paid and they're getting paid to promote something, then you, you can't always take everything they say 100% on face value. Hopefully that gives you some tips, some tactics. If in this time in particular, you are buying stuff online, that gives you some ideas of things to do. Let's jump into your questions because we've got a heap of them. I know I said we've got the, a record number of questions and then I spent way longer talking about that than I meant to. But it's something I'm passionate about and I don't want you, I want you to do all this thinking up front before you go and make the buying decision. Anyway, let's talk about uh, some questions here. So this was a question from Gamers Perspective HQ. It says, hi Pete, I'm using a third-party compressor FX plugin recently. If I delete the plugin and re-add it, the audio is terrible. I get a very bad static. Now we had a similar question from Jim Bird, who's here on the stream yesterday. And this can be caused by a lot of plugins, third-party plugins that you may be using, even if you're not using them or they're disabled, they can cause this. Now the only real workaround for this, if you're having these issues, is to find and remove the plugins. What I tend to do is go in and strip back everything. I know my buddy Steve also had an issue with the Stark amp sim doing this. And the problem is, it seems to be random. Some of your projects will work perfectly with the plugin. You load up another project and you'll have this issue. So unfortunately, there's no complete solve for this. Uh, as apps get updated, as plugins get updated, as software gets updated, these sort of things tend to get patched and fixed. But if you're having a problem, try removing it, try a different plugin, maybe a different comp compressor plugin uh, and see how that goes for you. But yeah, hopefully that, uh, that helps at least. Uh, you get that sem somewhat resolved. 
Question here from Random Account. Love some of the usernames, by the way. Uh, it says, hey, I have a Shure SM58 dynamic mic, which I've never plugged into a computer or device before. I wanted to use my microphone on GarageBand with my iPad, did some research, found an XLR to 3.5 millimeter mono jack and have an adapter so I can plug this into iPad and have some headphones coming from it. Done some research and this should be working, but the iPad still uses the built-in mic, isn't picking mine up. So what is the issue here? So if you are plugging things in to your iPhone or your iPad, here's the challenge. You've got a TRRS jack. I'm going to say lots of acronyms now, so prepare yourselves. TRRS stands for tip, ring, ring, sleeve. And what an XLR to 3.5mm plug will do is change the XLR to a TS, which is just a microphone, tip, sleeve, just the two, uh, the two connections. So the problem is if you plug a TS into a TRRS, it won't pick up that mic signal. It'll think it's a headphone jack and it'll get all confused and it'll just say, I give up, I'm just going to use the internal mic. What you need is a TRS to TRRS adapter, preferably one that has two inputs on one side, one for headphone, one for mic, and then the TRRS jack at the other end. That way you can plug your mic into one, headphones into the other, and then the, uh, the TRRS connection into your iPhone or iPad jack. An even better way to go is to use something like uh, an iRig device, or like an iRig preamp, iRig Pre, which are only about a $40, or the one I like is the Tascam IXZ or IXZ. It is a preamp and an instrument input, it has the TRRS at the other end, it has its own built-in TRS headphone jack, and you can plug directly in, it does all the conversion for you. And again, it's about a $50 little interface. So you'll get much better quality, you won't have to play around with all the adapters, and you'll be able to record guitars, microphones, keyboards, whatever you want into your device. So hopefully that helps you out, my friend, and gets you up and running with your recording. Here's a question from Real Racket Man 1903 Do you know if I can connect a PreSonus Studio 24C interface to an iPad Air? I don't because I've never used one. However, the question here is if your device, this is the, the, the test, the litmus test for this is if your device requires a driver to run on Windows or Mac, then it's unlikely to work. If, it plug, if it's plug and play, if you plug it into USB, it's recognized and you can use all the audio and all the channels without having to install a driver then it is likely to be what's called class compliant and therefore be iOS compatible. Unfortunately, there's no real way to tell until you try unless the manufacturer actually have it on their website. So the reason that I use Steinberg interfaces is that they are all, everything from the, the UR12, UR22, Mark II, UR44, are class compliant. So they will work with your iOS devices out of the box. Some of the PreSonus gear, especially earlier PreSonus gear, is not class compliant. It requires a driver to run. So unfortunately, I can't be definitive, but uh, hopefully that gives you some guidance with that one. Let's move on here. We've got check. Uh, oh, let's, uh, I won't say that out loud. The problem here is that there is no info on what to do inside GarageBand. It's taken for granted that we know how to get to the screen you are on. I've never even used open GarageBand except for now. Uh, finally, I can only get the synths to play the GarageBand synths. I don't want that. I want to play my own Roland, Yamaha, Korg, etc. So yeah, so the question here is around recording analog sound versus recording MIDI. So I'll give the very quick version of the explanation here. And if you want more, just search my name, Pete Johns, MIDI versus audio. And I've got a complete video that explains this. But MIDI data, so if you plug a MIDI keyboard into an iPhone or an iPad, it's going to send data. So it's just sending what the note is, how much sustain, how much aftertouch, how much velocity, and then it's going to play the instrument, what's called a soft instrument or a virtual instrument, 
in your software. And then that will play that back. So the you're getting none of the keyboard or the synth sound itself. To record your synth, what you need is an audio interface, preferably a two-channel audio interface if it's a stereo synth or it's got stereo effects. And what you need to do is plug the line out or even the headphone jack from your keyboard or your synth into the line in of an audio interface, something like a Focusrite Scarlett 2i2, a Steinberg UR22C, they're the ones that are gonna work well for you. So that is it, and apologies on the not showing you the details. Uh, this video was from about two years ago, and I spoke much quicker, so people struggled to understand me at the best of times, and I often didn't give as much context as I do now to say, here's, what, here's one, two, three step. I just jumped in and said, okay, open GarageBand and start recording. So I have hopefully become better with this over time. Couple more questions here, and then I can see that we've got questions here live. We will jump over to those in just a quick moment. Question here from Marty Mood. Hi, please help, I need your answer. Let's try. If I use a YouTube video, remove the sound and put my own voice, then re-upload it on my channel, do it still count as copyrighted? It do. Uh, the problem here is that copyright covers everything. So copyright covers uh, not only the audio, so if you use the actual original audio that's a copyrighted song, that will claim it as you using that audio. If you use the melody of a song, that a songwriter has created, that will claim, but it will do revenue sharing generally because it's gonna deem you as doing a cover version of that song. When it comes to vision, vision is also copyrighted. Copywritten, it has copyright on it. So yes, if you took, so if I took a Pearl Jam music video and then I just played my own Eddie Vedder voice over the top of the, the, the Pearl Jam video, then yes, it is going to be copyrighted because I'm using that. Original content is uh, anything, it can be written, it can be audio, it can be video, it can be concepts, like it, it gets really into the weeds. What I would say to you is, Create your own video, like there's cool apps out there that can do visualizations, you can use iMovie, you can shoot a video. I shot an entire music video on my iPhone 5 a couple of years ago. Like it can be done, requires some patience, but original content will always win out in the end, in my view. One more here and then we'll jump over to the folks live. We have uh, Haste here, help. Whenever I record a screen recording, like 15 minutes, it automatically makes it only 20 seconds to two minutes and he's using this, uh, this user is using an iPhone 7 Plus. So what is the dealio here? So if you're recording your screen, and we're talking to iOS folks here particularly, and why would you do this? Well, say you wanted to share a GarageBand project that you're working on, share a video idea, share something. You wanna record your screen, there's a few things to keep in mind. The reason that it will cut out like this is usually that you're doing something on the screen that's super graphic or processor intensive and recording the audio and video stream at full res while you're doing something that's graphically, in, in, uh, graphically intensive is always a problem. So most of the time when I get these questions, it's from folks trying to record like Fortnite games and Fortnite is gonna use a lot of the overhead on your iPhone. So yes, it can cut out. Things you can do to help this, just like recording in GarageBand or other apps, is to remove any other apps you're not using from the background. So make sure you're not running a heap of other apps in the background. A lot of us get in the habit of we don't close our old apps and they're sitting there in the background. That can use up additional memory because you need, it needs to have them in RAM to switch to when you go back to them. 
Uh, you can also put on airplane mode if you're not using something that requires data. That can stop a lot of background apps and stop all your network stuff, which can interfere with things like recording. And make sure you've got plenty of space. I'm talking like five gigabytes or more. Same with recording music. You'd be surprised even just recording. You'd be like, my song or my video is only like 500 meg. Why do I need five gigabytes? All of the caching of all the files, all of the playback, all of the things that are stored are put somewhere. And they're usually put in temp, temp files in the storage of your iPhone or iPad. So keep that in mind and you should be good to go. Let's jump over here. Uh, thank you to all the folks who are here live. We've got a few questions here from the live folks and we will jump into those now. So uh, Bubba asked the question first, which is, I have 58s, 57s, stands, iRig and all that, but I'm looking for a simple, not cheap, condenser mic that I can plug into the lightning port, no cord for convenience. So, yeah, there is a distinct lack of mics that go straight into the lightning port. My recommendation here is to pivot a little bit because I don't really like, well, I mean, okay, let me rephrase that. USB mics are good um, and lightning mics are good, but you're restricted with what you can then use them with. So let's say, Bubba, you go out and spend $200 on a condenser, because you can. There's the Apogee mic. The Apogee mic's probably the best condenser mic for iOS. It's a lightning port mic, plug straight in, really good quality condenser mic. But I think last time I checked here in Australia, it's about $300 or $350. Shure also make one, the Shure MV series. There's a Shure, I can't remember the model number, but it's a condenser mic that's kind of got like an interface and the, the dial's built into it. That's also about $300, $400 Australian, so probably $200 US. So there are options there. What I actually like though, and I know you probably want this for ultimate convenience, right? But I would use something like an iRig IO, like the iRig um, Pro IO that I use, and then plug in an XLR mic. And then you can use something like an AT, like an Audio-Technica AT2020, an SE, a Rode NT1A, something that's gonna be like a high quality condenser, and then just use that. There's also a another, there's a blue device, and I forget, the blue icicle. Blue icicle is pretty cool because it, it basically changes an XLR to a USB. It's like a little mini converter interface. But again, to use that, you'll need that, and then you'll need the cable. So if what you're trying to do is remove all the cables, Apogee or Shure, check out their ranges of lightning mics. I don't own one, I've used them, but I have never bought one, because again, I want the flexibility of being able to use it with a bunch of devices. And the other thing to keep in mind is, Apple have made it pretty clear that in their pro devices, they're moving from lightning to USB-C. So I wouldn't buy a whole lot of lightning gear now because that may go away. Things like the iRig that have USB and lightning, they're pretty good because you're gonna be future-proofed. You can just convert them to USB-C in the future. But really good question. Thank you for asking it here today. A question here from Jim Bird. I bought a brand name interface for $60 under a year ago and it's toast. What's the benefit of spending more money other than lifespan? Really good question. So yeah, here's what happens with a lot of folks. Like I'm, Behringer is the brand that makes the best quality and price entry level interfaces. Like people will debate that, but it's kind of it's kind of the case. And because they are reasonably cheap, a lot of folks buy them. They do the job. The challenge is that the preamps, the quality of the preamps, they're a little noisier. So you're going to get a little more interference, a little more background noise. The noise floor is going to be higher. So that's going to go into your recordings. The build quality is not going to be as good. So a lot of the cheaper interfaces have plastic components as opposed to, to aluminium or steel or something that's going to be more solid and rugged. Uh, and then the quality of the outputs is the final thing. The actual digital to, to analog, analog to digital converter 
is not going to be as strong, which means you might not get enough gain from your microphones. You, you have to turn the volume up to get enough gain and then you introduce noise and the actual output signal is not going to be as good. Uh, what I'd suggest, Jim, is head over to studiolivetoday.com slash gear. There is a USB audio interface buyer's guide right at the top of that page and that will give you all the information. But the to answer your question, the things you're going to get are better quality inputs. So the actual XLR inputs and quarter inch inputs, the preamps are going to be quite you're going to get better build quality so they are going to last longer as you mentioned there and the analog to digital conversion is going to be higher quality meaning that the when it's sending that audio to your digital audio workstation and when you're monitoring it through your monitor speakers or your headphones you're going to get better quality sound but a great question and it is something that people often do what tends to happen is that folks start out just like me i did this exact thing i bought a tascam a little 80 dollars tascam 16-bit uh, um, interface it still works but again it wasn't great quality i then moved on to a Focusrite scarlet 2i2 which was an upgrade in both quality and performance and then i moved into the steinberg range of interfaces because they're about the same cost as the Focusrite. but i just find for an ios user that ios compatibility out of the box and the dual power that you get so you can plug into a portable battery and power them up that works really well for me but great question jim thank you for being here on the show next question we have is from uh, desolate morning i have the tascam ixz or ixz when i plug my shore 58 into it it's really quiet at top volume yeah so basically refer to previous answer of question um yeah this is the problem with cheaper interfaces and especially analog interfaces is you need to turn them up you don't get enough gain through the preamp especially for dynamic microphones quick refresher on dynamic mics dynamic mics don't use any power so they don't use phantom power which means they're not a powered microphone which means you're going to get a quieter signal going into your interface or into your digital audio workstation so if you've ever recorded and you're like you've only got this line and it's, it's barely visible because you're using a dynamic microphone and an interface that doesn't have enough gain to turn it up if you update and you get something like the focus right or the scarlet 2i2 from focus uh, focus right or steinberg personas then you're going to get, be able to get a bit more gain. But dynamic mics uh, in particular are a challenge with this, especially if you're recording guitars. If you're recording vocals, it's a bit different because you can usually belt out a vocal and you get better, better uh, sound. But say you're recording an acoustic guitar with an SM58 or 57, that can be a really low recording. There are other devices uh, called Fethead or the other one is called the someone help me out here but basically they're an inline a converter that adds about 20 db or 20 decibels of gain to your quieter microphones so you can actually plug them in but they are about 150 to 200 dollars to buy they're not cheap so by the time you do that you might as well upgrade to at least an interface that's going to have a little bit more uh, power that's going to help you out um yes and quiet i know <laughs> quiet and quiet they're, they're two that uh, that I, I write the wrong way around often uh, but thank you for your question. Really appreciate it. Uh, Ricky Elvis, question. Is it possible to get a comprehensive video on the iSymphonic app, which I spotted on your iPad yesterday? Yes, you and others have been asking for a review of the iSymphonic for a long time. The problem is, not, it's not even a problem, but when I do reviews, I like to have a lot of information or at least most of the information that I can pass on. iSymphonic is such a full-featured app that I haven't had the time to sit down and spend three or four hours learning it myself. 
So there's two options I have here. Uh, one is that I may just do a sort of layperson's review, just like here it is, here's what it sounds like, here's how you add it to your track in GarageBand and just do that as a quick guide, which is probably what I'll do. And then the second thing is I'll just need to wait until I've learned a bunch more about it. So that may be the best way to go is to just show you that, because I actually bought it, like I didn't, uh, I do get some, as I mentioned in the start of the show, I do get some things and most of the time it's apps, but this is one that I actually bought myself, um, which is probably why I haven't done a review. When someone gives me a copy of an app, I kind of feel obliged. I at least want to check it out and I at least do a quick look video. With iSymphonic, I haven't quite got around to it yet, but it is on the list, it is sitting on that list. It has been there for a while. I will get to it eventually, I hope. But yes, keep nagging me. The best way for me to do something is to keep nagging me about it. <laughs> uh, question here from Washburn. I'm attempting to master songs to distribute through DistroKid. What level DB should I aim for? I feel like I'm overthinking it and going nuts. Mastering, especially through GarageBand, can be a challenging thing. Uh, if you're not aware of mastering, mastering is the final stage in sort of the recording process. You record your tracks, you mix them, which means mixing all the different tracks together, adding your effects, doing your automation, getting it sounding cohesive, and get your final mix. And then mastering is just those final tweaks. Now, wh what level you should aim at? There's a bunch of different ways you can measure it. And I personally don't ever go in, you can use RMS, you can use all these different types of meters, LUFS meters and things. I tend to just make sure that it's not clipping, it's not distorting. Like use your ears and make sure it's not clipping or distorting. And then make sure that you've at least got most of your peaks sitting up around zero dB. So you'll find that when you're mixing it, you'll, it'll be going up and down like this. You have a lot of dynamic range. Now you don't want to remove all of that or your song is just going to be, it's going to be like a brick wall, a wall of sound. I mean, if you're Metallica or you're Foo Fighters and you want to go for that sound, more power to you. They're more successful than I am. So maybe they're onto something. But if you want to get some more range, some more dynamic range, don't completely crush it. What I tend to do is I use, and I've done videos about this. If you search my name, Pete John's Mastery, Ugh, getting choked up about mastering. Pete John's mastering, then you'll see that in GarageBand, what I do is I just put the limiter up a little bit and then I check it in Audio Share just to see what that waveform's looking like. Not to mix or master with my eyes, but to actually just check that I'm not overdoing it. I then go back and do like two or three versions and I'm like, okay, this version where I'm completely crushing it, a moderate version and a light version, which one's gonna work better? And if you want a simple way to do this, uh, there's Audio Master Pro, which is an app that costs about 10 or $20. It's a really good version for that because it does all that for you. You basically just drag the slider until it's sounding right, and then it's done. That's mastered. I mastered my song Imagination using Audio Master Pro, and it came out sounding pretty good in my uh, view. Uh, let's continue on here. Derek Smith says, a question, how do you edit audio? for an iMovie file, EQ Reverb, for say a live music performance in iOS? Whoa, uh, this is a, a long question. The, the short answer is I generally don't because I do a lot of live performing and live streaming. It's rare that I'll record something and then go back and tweak the audio. In the times that I have, uh, what I tend to do is, is do some very basic processing, similar to what I would do on a guitar and a vocal. If I do a guitar vocal performance and I've got it on two tracks or even on one track, 
I'll go in there, I'll roll off the lows if I've got any rumbles, I'll add a little bit of EQ uh, up the top end if I need a little bit of air in my vocal or my acoustic guitar, I'll add a little bit of reverb and sometimes some delay to taste, and then I'll compress just to make sure that the performance is consistent and there aren't too many significant peaks and troughs. And that's about it. I don't spend a lot of time tweaking that. I try to get it right at the source, I try to record it as well as I possibly can so that when I get to the editing phase, there is less to do and then it's just some light tweaks that make things sound good. Uh, we've got other folks saying yes to iSymphonic, please. Yes, absolutely. Uh, Jade says she's just purchased the final iSymphonic and going to do a tutorial video soon. There you go. Jade can do that because Jade just gets on and gets stuff done. She doesn't talk about stuff and then take forever. She just gets it done. <laughs> Is there a free way of mastering? Another question from Desolate Morning. Uh, yes, uh, mastering in GarageBand is totally feasible. I've used it many occasions. In fact, I've mastered directly in GarageBand. It's not as easy and intuitive, intuitive as if you buy something like Audio Master Pro or Final Touch, which are the two apps, or even uh, Clef Grind have, uh, what is this called? Clef Grind Mastering, Clef Grind, uh, grand, grand Finale. Got it, got there. Thank you, Brain. Uh, so yeah, there are apps that you can use, but yeah, you can definitely just master in GarageBand. It's really mostly about limiting. So put the, uh, the AU Peak limiter on there, maybe a little EQ, rarely that you're going to use any reverb or delay or anything else. It really comes down to that limiting, which is just compression, but a, a brick wall version of compression and a little EQ, and you should be go. Go? Should be good to go. <coughs> and Watchburn says, thanks, so I am overthinking. 100%. Like, start doing it. This is the thing. We, we I know, we, we create songs, and then we're like, how do I make this? What if I don't do it right? What do the pros do? What if it doesn't stack up? Try it. See what happens. If it doesn't, if it sounds crappy, try again. If it sounds great, you're onto something and keep doing it that way. It does come down to that. I think too many folks, exactly as you're saying here, and I did this early on as well, you overthink things to the point where it's just like analysis paralysis. You're like all these options when really at the end of the day, all you need to do is grab a limiter and bump it up 3dB and then release it. Like it's, it can often be as simple as that. I know people will criticize me for oversimplifying, uh, but that's what I believe in. Let's continue on. We'll jump back over to our questions. I think we were up to this one here. I know we're going long here today. We'll be another 10 minutes or so. Question here from Sebastian Solis. Dif and this was to do with the difference between a USB audio interface and a mixer, which we were talking about uh, interfaces earlier. So can you use both together or just choose one over the other? So if you are looking for something to record with, so an audio interface or a mixer, you can go with both. So you could get yourself a mixer for like live performances, for live streaming, for, for things. I used to use the Samson Mixpad, which I'm about to sell, by the way. Anyone in Australia looking for a mixer, <laughs> hit me up. Um, so I used to use the Samson Mixpad. Now I have the Zoom LiveTrack L8. Now the Zoom LiveTrack is a hybrid device. So the good thing is that these hybrid devices, the Persona Studio Live, the Zoom LiveTrack, which are an audio interface and a mixer, they do both. They can send out the stereo mix of all of your tracks and they can record each track individually. I'm gonna trial it in the happy hour today. I'm gonna to record my guitar and mic separately and then to Derek's point, do a little mixing afterwards and see how it's gonna work if I bring those two tracks into GarageBand or something like that. So uh, yeah, you can do that. Um, you can also get an analog mixer and do all your mixing and then send that out as a stereo signal into an audio interface, hook that up to your PC, your Mac, your iPad, your iPhone and record all that onto two tracks. That's possible as well. You do lose a bit of quality. 
every step, every analog step in your chain is going to give you a slight degradation in quality. So if you take the analog signal, like a quarter inch TRS out of your mixer, plug it into your two line inputs of say a Focusrite Scarlett 2R2 or a Steinberg UR22C, and then record those on two stereo channels, you're not going to get the same as if that was going direct in. Does that make sense? So going direct in means there's only one analog connection, one digital connection to your device, and you're recording. If you've got a mixer, audio interface, and then DAW, it's going through two sets of analog devices. You are going to get some additional noise in your signal and additional degradation, uh, disimprovement, going to sound better, right? <laughs> That's what we're saying. Uh, let's keep going. Uh, next question here is a long one, but a good one. Uh, so this is from Jeremiah, and it's today I hooked up four mics into my Behringer, plugged it into my iPad Air 2 via lightning to USB, GarageBand recognized the interface, I set up the channels, and it didn't deliver a signal. Everything seems fine, the adapter is powering, the interface, and it's reading the channels, but has zero signal to my ears. So there's a couple of things here. Uh, assuming it's class compliant device, so it sounds like it's something like the Behringer UM404 or something like that, which is a four channel and is class compliant. And it depends on how it's powered. So if it is a, a device that has AC power, then it, it should be totally fine. It should be powering up. If it's not, then a USB hub, a powered USB hub will generally work and generally be the way to go. The other variable here, and I haven't checked in with Jeremiah, is to ensure that uh, they're using a Lightning to USB 3 adapter, the new one, the genuine Apple one. Unfortunately, and you know, broken record, Pete here is saying the same thing. I've said it many times before. If you use the non-genuine Apple Lightning to USB 3 adapter or Lightning to USB adapter, you can come across these issues where things will either not work at all, They'll look like they're working, but you get no audio through, or they'll work, the, the worst one, they'll work for about 10 minutes, and then you'll suddenly get that accessory not supported pop up. Who hates that? Me, right here. Uh, so yeah, if you don't want that, get the genuine one. They're MFI, made for iPod, they're certified, they're going to work for you. But yeah, it, it, try those things and let me know, and of course I will respond on the original post as well. Another long one. I'm using iOS. This is from Tim Osborne. Hello to you, Tim. I'm using iOS on my iPad to record my music with headphones, have powered monitors and garage band on my Mac, but can't access them due to being covered in stuff in the baby's room. Uh, he was born two years ago. So I want to start mixing them master. And question is, is it possible to mix the master on headphones only? Will that be a good radio-ready project to put out in the public domain? Last recorded a song in 1981 in a London recording studio where everything was buttons and computers weren't heard of. I hear you, my friend. So the question here is, using iOS, GarageBand, can we mix on headphones? In general, can we mix on headphones and master on headphones? Short answer is yes. Longer answer is yes. <laughs> uh, you can. It's all about what you know about your headphones. I've talked about these headphones a lot. I've talked about the uh, Sennheiser HD 280 Pro. Now, I know when I listen, I listen to all my music. I listen to other people's music. I do my mixing, my mastering. A lot of it happens on these. I do have KRK Rockets here that I listen to as monitor speakers as well. But probably 80% of my stuff is done on these headphones for the fact that I have a family around me, for the fact that I live in the suburbs, all of those things. I can't be cranking up the tunes all the time. So... 
I, I rely on these. It comes down to how well you know your headphones. So I know these headphones that they're pretty flat, but I do know that they are going to slightly overemphasize the bass compared to some speakers and definitely compared to earbuds. So I know that once I've done my mix, I will listen to it on my earbuds and I'll be like, oh no, the bass has all but disappeared because I'm hearing the bass here, I don't hear the bass here. So I know that I need to always be not too concerned about the bass. I also know that my vocals and if you've listened to my music, you know that I have a tendency of mixing my vocals too loud. Reason being, through these suckers, my vocals, the clarity of my vocals really cuts through the mix more so than it does in any other environment. So I have to basically make sure I know that my vocals need to be about 2 dB lower than what they actually sound like they should be to me. So over time, I've worked that out, and now I trust that when I'm listening on these, they're the things I need to do. Be conscious of the bass and make sure I mix my vocals lower. You'll learn your own headphones over time, but it will take time. You'll have to do a mix and then maybe take it to your Mac, play it back through your studio monitors, and then make some notes and then go back to your mix. Take it to the car, all the other things. Do the car stereo test, do the Bluetooth speaker test, do the crappy earbud test, do everything, and that will help you out. But can you do it? 100%. People have made, recorded, mixed, mastered entire albums in their apartment, in their headphones. Like, it can be done. So just get on and do it. All righty. Uh, question here from Miss Channel. Uh, using Apple's audio unit plugins in GarageBand. There's a way to, is there a way to use iOS GarageBand plugins on Mac? Because I love the echo ambient delay plugin on iOS GarageBand, but can't, can't find it on Mac GarageBand. Please help me. And then they fell down a well. Um, I don't know. This is the short answer. I would imagine, like the synth sounds and some of the other alchemy sounds, but you can't access them in GarageBand Mac, but if you send a GarageBand iOS project to your Mac, you can access some things. So I would experiment with this. And if anyone in the community has a Mac and an iPhone and some time on their Saturday evening or their Sunday morning, give this a try. Send it from your GarageBand on your iOS device over to your Mac and see, does it keep those plugins? Some of those iOS only type plugins that we have, does it actually keep those when you send it across? Be interested to know. Patrick at the GarageBand Guide, are you out there? Uh, give it a go. Let us know because I have had this question on, uh, on a few occasions. So hopefully uh, we can find an answer for you. Question about uh, USB flash drives with an iPhone. So the question from the gaming zone is, this didn't work <laughs> for my iPad Air 2 16 gig. I'm getting an iPhone 8, so hopefully it'll work on that. So it should work on your iPad Air 2. Here's the thing about using it. We'll finish off on this question because we are way over time. I try to make this a 30 minute show. I think we're nudging 45. So let's make this the last thing. Few things to think about. If you wanna connect a USB flash drive to your iPhone or iPad, it needs to be running iOS 13 or iPad OS 13. So you need an iPad Air 2, an iPad mini 4, an iPhone 6S and above, or any iPad Pro. You also need to have external power. So you need to be using something like the Lightning to USB 3 adapter that has that second Lightning port so you can actually power up your stuff. Thirdly, you may also need a powered USB hub if your drive is using a lot of different, uh, a lot more power than you think. And the final thing is file format is important. Now, Windows NTFS format is the big one that's not supported that a lot of folks have drives formatted as. And I'm guilty of this because back in the day, we were told that Windows NTFS was the best format. It had the best, it was gonna give you a drive, longer life, it's gonna be more compatible with all your, blah, 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 blah. And it turns out that 
we all should have been using XFAT uh, this whole time. Don't worry if you're not into the weeds of file formats, don't stress, just plug in your drive. If you've got a Mac or a PC, plug it in and make sure it's either one of the standard Mac formats, your HFS formats, or if you go into your drive and you go into the properties and it says NTFS, make sure that you, well, not make sure, but what you'll need to do is copy off all your, all your files to somewhere else, reformat that drive as XFAT or FAT32, one of those, and then transfer your files back on because it's not going to be compatible with your iPhone or iPad unless it is an FAT. We are going to have to finish off there. Thank you for being part of this. If you're watching on the video and you got some value, hit the like button. Don't forget, if you are buying online, buying gear from online at the moment, head over to the gear guide at studiolivetoday.com slash gear. Check out all of my recommendations. All of those things are used and tested and recommended by me. And as I mentioned, there's affiliate links there, which means if you make a purchase, they break off a chunk and send it my way. Head over to studiolivetoday.com also to find out ways to get in touch with me, join the mailing list, support me on Patreon, do all of those good things. But most importantly, make sure you return here again to watch more videos here on Studio Live Today. Thanks everyone for being here. I'll see you next time.